Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to another edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, those who happen to cross our broadcast for the first time, is our daily journey through God's Word. One question to the heart at a time, and that's where you come in. It's your questions on the Bible that make up the content of each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. So if you've got a question about the Bible, uh, a question about applying the Bible to your life, maybe uh, some tough questions you've been asked about your faith in the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ, and maybe you felt a day late and a dollar short as far as being able to give a reason for the hope that's within you, as our name implies, that's precisely what we are here to do. So uh, feel free to jump on in with any question you have, uh, whether it's about the events of the day the events of tomorrow, biblical prophecy. We are all over it here on A Reason for Hope. Uh, joined here by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richards. Sean, how can people get those questions to us if they are so inclined? Well, if you're joining us online, you can first go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. The Calvary is spelled C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. If you click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen, it'll say Watch Live in the purple bar, you'll be sent to ccftucson.online.church, and there we will have a countdown clock as well as a streaming software video access portal for you to not only watch the broadcast, but leave your questions on the right-hand side of the screen. We'll be able to engage with you there and as well to inform you of when this pro, uh, this broadcast rather fits into your respective time zone. And if you want to join us through that, we highly encourage it. This will be our hosted platform. We can't be taken down unless it's our fault. Yes. <laughs> uh, speaking of things that could be taken down that aren't our fault, if you want to join us on YouTube, it's a reason for hope. And Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Those bring the advantage of notifying you when you're going live, or whether when we are going live for you. And of course, uh, if we aren't broadcasting without prior notice or technical malfunctions, join us on our website. They can't ban us on our own platform. That is what it is there for, and that is what we hope to continue to use, as well as those who are joining us on Reach Radio. If you are joining us there, you can email us your questions at any time after, during, or before the broadcast at questions, F-O-R, hope at gmail.com. If you join us on any one of our video platforms, it will be spelled out for you at the bottom of the screen. Hopefully that will be accommodating. But Note that the standards for the questions we'll be receiving and answering will be, of course, sincere Bible questions. Sincerity means you want to hear the answer. The Bible is ultimately the goal in what is being asked, that the crux of the question, pun intended, will lead us to the Bible as the answer rather than outside of the Bible. And of course, if it's asked in the form of a question, you'll get bonus Jeopardy points if yeah. you phrase it in the form <laughs> of a question. Right. So with all of that being said, remember that our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, is the main ministry meeting place where you can send your questions to us. Our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. Our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope, and our Facebook page is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Give us a like, subscribe, or bookmark us. You'll be able to engage with us from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every single weekday. That's right. So 
Why don't we start off with a word of prayer and see uh, what, I guess, the Lord has in store for us, and also making a point as well, real quick, uh, current events report. Uh, there is a certain, I guess, uh, glorification of brothers and sisters in the Lord we also want to pray for as well. Can we notify our audience about that? Yeah, uh, there was a, uh, a really sad note that was passed along. Pastor Scott and his uh, wife, Nancy Cox of uh, Colorado, Calvary Chapel, Windsor, Colorado, passed away on the 4th of July in a uh, car accident. Uh, obviously, the fellowship there is devastated. Uh, we know that Scott and Nancy have entered into their reward, but uh, we just want to include them uh, in our prayers. And if you've got a prayer chain, a prayer team in your church, please uh, be lifting up Pastor Scott and, uh, and Nancy's family and uh, the church family there in Windsor, Colorado. So let's uh, go before the Lord. Father, I thank you, Lord, that uh, when a tragedy like the one we just found out about uh, takes place, Lord, we're reminded of some really important things. The time we have on this earth is not an unlimited resource. And Lord, we want to make the most of it. We want to be equipped to be able to deal with the challenges of living in times like these, to be able to bring your light and your love into the darkness and coldness of this world and make a difference in the lives of people for eternity. We thank you for Pastor Scott and Nancy and the difference they made in the lives of people in Windsor. We pray, Father, that you would uh, surround the fellowship uh, there with your mercies and with your love and that uh, in a, a real powerful and profound way, you would work all things together for good, using even this set of circumstances, so tragic, uh, to further uh, the, the gospel and bring more people into everlasting life. I know that would be Scott and Nancy's desire, and we know it's your desire as well. Please bless this program. Uh, bless uh, the uh, path of conversation we go on. Uh, may we uh, represent you, not only in what we share, but even the, the heart that we share it in. We pray, Father, for those uh, watching and listening, that you would give them a receptive heart to be able to receive your word in plan and allow it to produce a crop 30, 60, or 100-fold of what's planted. Thank you that we can give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. Now, we'll be waiting to receive your questions and keeping an eye on our social media platforms where they can be posted. But we also want to give priority to an email question that was sent to us that, uh, well, quite frankly, is preaching to the choir. Uh, this is from Jody, <laughs> who wants to know, how do we reconcile Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, where the daughters of men bore children to the sons of God with the implied asexual state of angels. That is what Jesus mentioned in Matthew 22 and verse 30. We'll read both passages in a moment. Were the sons of God supernatural beings like demons? If so, these former angels were not made with sexual organs and could not participate in procreation. By the way, I've since changed jobs. We've worked at a time where you can answer on the radio. Couldn't with my other job. Have a great one. Well, thank you for the question, Jody. Glad you can join us live. Yep. Yeah, this uh, famous Nephilim question is definitely <laughs> one that meets the rounds as far as the regularity of questions we answer on the broadcast. It's almost like our ministry uh, bingo. If we can uh, mark out the questions that we could almost all but assume will get asked within a month's period of time, yeah. this would be the one in the circle, because you can always guarantee this will be asked at least once. When it comes to the issue of the Nephilim, obviously there are two main approaches that people take towards the Scripture in order to understand this very curious uh, section of Scripture. And of course, we don't use the emphasis of interpreting the obscure at the expense of the plain. We want to start with the plain information and then work our way back to the obscure. So when it comes to 
the different uh, views that people have regarding the Nephilim or the fallen ones, the sons of God, went into the daughters of men. They saw that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves. It's essentially a matter of which words in that sentence you're going to place greater emphasis on. And then here's the kicker, not just what you'll emphasize in the text, but your conclusions then should be examined with other texts. Right. Now, starting with... Scripture interprets Scripture. Yeah. The hermeneutics 101. Yeah. But... Uh, Herman who? Hermes. Oh. <laughs> uh, the first position is that, and this is, of course, our position as well as, I hope, yours, uh, the Nephilim were influential people in the ancient world that were produced from the compromised relationships between the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain. That's how we would identify the sons of God and the daughters of men. It would then set a precedent going forward for how unequally yoked relationships would result in devastating spiritual compromises in the future. The reasons we would come to that conclusion, and again, starting with a plain reading of the text, and by the way, we're not just going to isolate or straw man the position that we disagree with, we've taken the time to know that as well. But Genesis chapter 6 and verses 1 through 4 begin with You want these me to words. read it? Yeah. Absolutely, go ahead. It says, uh, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit will not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. And they had children, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, the word giants there isn't referring to stature per se. It's referring to the word Nephilim, which is translated fallen ones. Now, these men of renown, these influential people at this time before the flood, which takes place in chapter seven, is yeah. of course important to note in the timeline. But just like going forward, what would be the first key biblical support for our interpretation? Not just Genesis six and seven, but Genesis four and five. Right. Because the, what happened in Genesis four, it was the murder of, Cain, of uh, Abel at the hands of Cain, and the showing and demonstration of the apples, I guess, not falling too far from the tree. Yes. There was uh, the individual who was talented in musical instruments speaking to his wife first moral compromise, and his name no, was... No, uh, his name was Lamech. Uh, I think you're speaking of uh, 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 Jabel as the one that was uh, the musical instrument guy. Lamech uh, was a guy who composed a song, for sure, but uh, it was basically a song saying if uh, Cain is going to be avenged seven times, then Lamech is going to be avenged 70 times, uh, and he bragged about uh, killing a kid for mouthing off to him. So we see this escalating state of violence, which is why Genesis 6 and verse 5 notes that wickedness prevailed greatly on the earth, that the thoughts and hearts of men were only evil continually, and it even grieved God that he had made man because of the state of this world. Yeah, at, uh, in the uh, plain reading of Genesis chapter 4, uh, literally every descendant of Cain that we find in there is uh, either not a good guy or <laughs> is not specified as being a good guy. And just like in Genesis chapter 5, where you see the line of Seth, we call it the godly line of Seth, because the names that are given to individuals in the godly line of Seth tended to indicate a relationship with God. Seth was a person who called upon the name of the Lord. And in contrast to 
Lamech, who is seen as sort of the epitome of what the ungodly line of Cain was all about, who do we have in Genesis chapter 5 as sort of the epitome of the godly line of Seth? We have several, but Enoch would be the most prominent. He'd be sort of the anti-Lamech in that he walked with God and was not, for God took him. Yeah, and so, this is also true of not only Seth himself, but also of Lamech in naming Noah in expectation. We have Methuselah and noting his significant age and the parallels to which that had with the Ark's uh, completion and many other things. And just as a side note, the man's day shall be 120 years. That isn't in conflict with the days and ages that we see the people were living before the flood and in the pre-flood right. world, it's noting 120 years, this is going to come to a stop, and that's noting the time that which God would be providing and explaining the purpose of the ark. With Noah, Noah being born. a preacher of righteousness during that time. Which yeah. is cited in Hebrews chapter 11, don't take our word for it. Yeah. But continuing on with that point, and this is important as well, we want to make the approach of a narrative that starts with chapter 1 and continues to chapter 2, then 3, then 4. So if we're going to note the flow of a passage. Obviously, you can't go before Genesis. The book literally means beginnings. Right. But if we're going to follow the point that's being made, Genesis 6 doesn't just drop this bomb on us and not leave us with any explanation. We believe the most sound explanation with the most biblical data is the chapters that led up to it. The sons of God are mentioned as reference to, this is our conclusion, and we'll test it in a moment, the godly line of Seth, the sons of God. It is a relational term, not a biological disposition of their spiritual origins. It's a relational term, just like Jesus when he references himself as the son of God. It's not saying that the God the Father biologically sired somebody, it is that he relates to the Father as a son. Right. So noting that emphasis in even messianic significance. So understand that point. The Daughters of men, obviously, if there's going to be children born, a girl has to be involved. I grieve that I have to explain that, but it's still true today. Yep. The uh, ungodly line of Cain would be identified as such, and the offspring of these compromised relationships are what we're referring to as these fallen ones, that the giants aren't referring to their demonic hybrid nature resulting in some theogony, uh, I guess, ripoff of Kronos and Gaia producing the many-armed and eyed giants of the ancient world. These are just prominent people, which the passage then goes on to explain. And we also see that word mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, post-flood, which will be important for the alternative right, view. Right. In the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 25 in particular, we're noting that the compromise of Israel with Moab is the reason why this would be told to them in the first place, that the moral compromises they were making in engaging with these Midianite and Moabite women were, of course, in pagan rituals that involved reproduction, let's say, for the sake of the audience. Yeah, so this is in a sense a shot over the bow. It's, it's saying that the idea of unequally yoked relationships, the sons of God and the daughters of men, was something that uh, really hastened the destruction of the ancient world and would be uh, something that came within a gnat's eyelash of even wiping out the people of Israel later on. And is further condemned in Scripture as well. So we have a conceptual consistency, a historical consistency, and we can examine it as well. When, for example, we look at the first attempt to enter into the Promised Land, what was the majority opinion, the 10 out of the 12 spies, when they reported the state of Canaan at this time, who did they describe as being there? Yeah, they said the Nephilim were there, and we were like grasshoppers in their sight. 
Now, so, if the Nephilim is, and this will tie into the alternative explanation in a moment, referencing these demonic hybrids that should have been wiped out in the flood, was Noah not perfect in his generations, which we'll explain more in a moment, or is this describing someone's relationship with God rather than the uh, biological and spiritual state of their parents. So yeah. note the point. This yeah, you wouldn't come to that conclusion if you hadn't pretty much made up your mind that we were talking about some kind of um, you know, human-demon uh, hybridization going on. So. And again, Jody, you made this point in your comment as well. In Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30, there's an observation made by Jesus, but we won't necessarily get to that yet. We want to first give the counterexample and use that as a response to it, the critical examination of some conclusions that don't pass biblical muster in our eyes. So note, again, just to repeat the points that have been made, our position on the Nephilim, is not that these are demonic hybrids or monsters or giants or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, the mentality is that Satan wanted to thwart the idea of Messiah coming into the world. Which is uh, true. Which, which has been true uh, from Genesis chapter 3 when God gave the prophecy that uh, the offspring of the woman would come and crush his head. He went about the business of trying to wipe out mankind before that Messiah could in fact come. And, and the so, ones to whom the promise was given, we see this even as early as Exodus chapter 1. Yeah, so when uh, some people look at this, they will say, well, this was Satan's great plan to thwart God's plan of salvation by having these angelic beings, these fallen ones, come down and Not make... Not the angelic beings, the fallen ones were their offspring. Well, the, the, the angelic beings would come down, the sons of God would come down, and they would say, well, in, in uh, the, the book of Job chapter 1, uh, we're told that angels are called the sons of God. So they these are. sons of God would come down and have sexual relations with the daughters of men and... Uh, create these human angelic hybrids and the reason behind that and we're trying to as you say iron man it here give the other side a fair hearing is because in the book of hebrews chapter 2 we are told that god does not give aid to angels in other words angels are not capable of being redeemed by god and so they would say that because of this uh, because of this uh, plan to make humanity unredeemable by having them be half men and half angels. Uh, that is why the flood took place. That is why Noah was called perfect in his generations. And that's why only eight people survived, because they were the only ones untainted by this endeavor by the wicked one. Uh, and uh, they would point to uh, passages to support this, like Jude. Uh, in Jude, only one chapter, and verse 5, we read this. But I want to remind you, Though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who didn't believe. And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given them over themselves over to sexual immorality uh, and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire." Well, they would say, well, see, these angels went after strange flesh. That's why uh, God intervened and uh, destroyed the ancient world with the flood. And they'd also cite Second Peter 2 and verse 4 to support this as well, that they were bound in chains of darkness until the appointed time. Right. Now, there's, uh, there's a few problems with that. 
I can count four. Yeah. So uh, what's problem number one? Well, Jody gave it to us in uh, Matthew chapter 22. Jesus made an observation when he was challenged about the absurdity of the resurrection by the Sadducees. The context of the conversation was on the supernatural status of people post-resurrection and their marital relationships in previous lives. So notice, marriage is in mind here, relationships in the spiritual realm, in heaven. And Jesus makes the point of clarification, have you not read the scriptures, which by the way was a huge diss to his audience, (laughs) they had read the scriptures, in saying that when in the resurrection they are like the angels, which neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like, notice, the angels. So if the point then stands, there is a truth statement being made here from a spiritual authority as, uh, I guess, minuscule as Jesus. He made the observation (laughs) that angels do not marry. And like in the book of Malachi, chapter 2, one of the purposes of marriage in God's eyes is the production of godly offspring. It would be an inaccurate understanding of a righteous angel's view of marriage. Now, this is to their credit, the position that we don't hold. A righteous view of a spiritual entity's view of marriage that would produce offspring. So the conclusion then is made that angels are not sexual beings. They're not physical beings. They're spiritual. Thus they lack the apparatus to reproduce. And of course, the argument on the other side is, and again, we're acknowledging both ends here, these aren't righteous angels. These are unrighteous angels, which ends up actually creating two problems. Okay, and here's the big problem with saying that these are unrighteous angels. The people who take the uh, fallen angels cohabitating with uh, uh, human uh, women, uh, first of all, it doesn't say they raped them or just had sexual relationships with them. It says they took them as wives, which really flies in the face of what we read in Matthew chapter 22. The other part about this that uh, is fascinating is the term sons of God never refers to fallen angels, right? The only fallen angel that is mentioned in Job chapters 2 and 3, or 1 and 2, rather, is Lucifer, who is well, made distinct. Satan, yeah, and, and it says in Job chapter 1 that the sons of God came before God, and Satan was also among them. There is so a distinction the between Satan and the sons of God. The adversary and the accuser did not have a relationship with God that the other angels had. Right. Now, if you're going to infer into the text, you're going to commit what's called eisegesis and say, well, there were demons in there too. That's not what it says. It only makes one distinction between the sons of God and the enemy, the adversary, the accuser. That's what Satan means. Right. So you have to assume a lot of what you're trying to prove, rather than prove what we are not willing to assume. The other issue with this, and again, building on the point of the claim that Matthew 22 and verse 30, Jesus's understanding of this spiritual nature regarding marriage, is not available to angels, not participated in by angels, and is not supported in Genesis chapter 6, is then what, you, what would we would basically say is, and people who take this position, well, there's never a reference to human beings beings called sons of God. This is exclusively an angelic term. Your interpretation lacks biblical merit, to which we would turn to the book of Hosea, chapter 1 and verse 10, where it says, yet the number of the children of Israel, is that angels? 
No. Are those angels? No. The children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. Now, if you're going to make the stretch and say, well, it doesn't say sons of God, it says sons of the living God, go sit in the corner. But if, on the other hand, we're going to have an honest conversation about this and not just wave around our credentials, what else flies in the face of this? And again, I made the reference earlier, we were flowing in a conversation, Numbers chapter 13, verses 32 through 33, make a reference to the Nephilim post-flood. So either God failed in the purpose of the flood, or that wasn't the purpose of the flood. Yeah. We need to make sure that yeah, that's the, clear the as Nephilim well. Yeah, the Nephilim are back in the book of Numbers. And yeah. this is what ultimately brings us down to the crux of the matter. If the reference to Noah, this is in challenging the opposing view, being perfect in his generations means that he qualified for a relationship with God based on his genetics, should you be saved? Were your parents Christians? Um, no. Well... You know, I mean, I have no connection whatsoever to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm a Heinz 57 variety Gentile, so I've got no hope at all. And you condemned me by that, because (laughs) apparently our genes qualify us for salvation. And if you're going to compartmentalize this and say, well, no, that's how salvation worked dispensationally before the flood, again, go sit in the corner. But if, on the other hand, we're talking about (laughs) salvation... There's a lot of people in that corner over there. I can name two. But here's the point. When we're talking about this issue, it's not a matter of dividing fellowship. If you run into someone who holds the Nephilim view, I might squint at him, but it's not a salvation issue in regards to this makes or breaks you as a Christian. We can have good conversations about this, but it would be no more consequential in regards to different views about the end times. It might bring up problems in their handling of other scripture, whether they'll be consistent, and it also might be a mark of spiritual maturity in our ability to listen first and foremost, that needs to be practiced in rhetoric, but also their ability to acknowledge scriptures that fly in the face of their views. For example, when people challenge me about the pre-tribulation rapture, which I hold to, we're talking about an issue that isn't as solid as we would like it to be. There are unanswered questions that that sort of approach to Scripture does, in fact, provide. For example, what is the significance of the chronology of Matthew chapter 24 in noting the then the end will come after the wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, and pestilences in various places? I have to set that aside in favor of what I do know. It doesn't answer every question. When it comes to, say, for instance, my preference towards uh, mo- Uh, Molinism, not modalism, Molinism, as opposed to emphasis on sovereignty or free will, it doesn't answer every question, because there are passages that emphasize one over the other. It's an Molinism, for those of you who are uh, keeping score at home, is a uh, way of answering the question, is God uh, completely sovereign, or does man have a free will? If God knows everything in advance, uh, how can there possibly be actual decisions be made? Molinism, from a theologian named Molina, uh, says that God knows everything that will happen, everything that won't happen, but he also has middle knowledge of everything that possibly could 
happen. And that's where the free will thing comes in. And again, that's because it answers more questions for me, but it doesn't answer every question. Right. And I'm willing to be challenged on those issues. It wouldn't disqualify me from being a Christian. When it comes to the non-negotiables, and we'll just cap it off with this before we repeat the points in a very, very brief manner, we want to get to your questions as well, is first of all, the authority of Scripture. Where we're getting all this information from, that's where we find out things about God. And if we're going to find out these things about God, God should be the ultimate end goal and focus. The question as to whether or not angels produced half-human demon hybrids and the flood had to destroy them, or that people in ancient history compromised in spiritual relationships and produced very influential and corrupt people that were ultimately a I guess, liability rather than an asset to the spiritual state of the world, that is something that we can have good conversations about, but it doesn't compromise that non-negotiable. We're both looking to Scripture to understand the true statements that make up this doctrine. And note as well, to their credit, it's not just based on one verse out of context either. They reference Jude, they reference Second Peter, they reference uh, Job 1 and 2 and right. many others. So to their credit, we note both sides are approaching the Scripture consistently, but the conclusions are what need to be challenged. The second issue that we can't uh, negotiate on is the first and foremost key detail about who God is according to Scripture, that is the Trinity, the deity of Christ, and all these foundational understandings of what God is, as well as who God is, and note those aren't the same thing. The third foundational truth that we need to understand as Christians, if we're going to call ourselves and each other Christians, is not only the Trinity, but also the nature of our salvation, that it is by grace through faith, that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. People who throw that out in favor of there's no salvation apart from membership in my church, or people who would say, unless you also affirm these extra testaments from our self-proclaimed prophet, that would be a cult, that would be a false gospel, that would send you basically to Galatians chapter 1, and you'd get a uh, severe tongue lashing from the Apostle Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Hopefully you care about that sort of thing. And then finally, the deity of Christ. The only reason that we listen to Jesus is the affirmation and confirmation of what the Word was talking about from the beginning, who God is, and the reason why we trust it is because God has revealed Himself in history. Yeah. If I were to look at all those things and ask where the Nephilim fit into it, I don't see it. It would be a secondary issue. That's also true of the end times. That's also true of many other issues that we can be, I guess, cordial, rhetorical about, and being able to converse about these things respectfully. But here's the two positions, just in a quick recap, because we answer it so often, and we want you to be able to give a reasonable answer as well. The first position, the one we disagree with, is that the sons of God and the daughters of men were humans and angels, that their cohabitation, their marriages with each other, produced uh, creatures that were not qualified for salvation, and that God introduced the flood in order to prevent mankind from being irredeemable, both in actions, attitude, and in their nature. Yeah. And they would note those passages that we mentioned before to verify that. Our position, and that we hold to with hopefully clarified reasons, 
is that the sons of God were the godly line of Seth mentioned in the immediate previous chapter, and the daughters of men are the offspring of Cain and his descendants in the chapter before that. That their compromised moral relationships are further detailed upon as far as the consequences that has for the spiritual state of the world in the book of Numbers, which is the historical record of the events that were following after uh, Israel was given Genesis, and the specific history we're told therein, and we also test and examine and challenge the conclusions against it with those passages we mentioned. So Jody, let us know if that helps you out. Anything more to say before we get to Neil's question? Well, actually, uh, a similar follow-up question from Neil on our uh, YouTube site. Uh, He asks, is Satan and Job the same being as the serpent in Genesis? Was the world already broken since the serpent was sinning before Adam and Eve? Uh, I guess to answer it, uh, this real quickly, uh, Neil, it seems like the essence of your question was when did evil enter into this world? Well, uh, I think we can somewhat bracket the time frame where the fall of Satan took place, which took place before the fall of man, Neil. In the book of Genesis chapter 1, uh, we are told in verse 31, then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. In other words, after God completed the physical creation of the universe and even the creation of man in the Garden of Eden, uh, everything was very good. The Hebrew there is emphatic. There was no evil. There was no wickedness. There was no sin. There was no death. Passages like uh, Romans chapter 5 and later on in in chapter 6 tell us that uh, sin came into the world through a man and death through sin. That is through the fall of Adam and Eve. But uh, as far as the fall of Satan is concerned, it happens somewhere between this statement that we find in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31, that everything was very good, no fault or flaw in it, and Genesis chapter 3, where we see the serpent coming on the scene in the Garden of Eden. Now, uh, the fact that uh, Satan is cursed in all of this, the fact that uh, this curse of Satan, that Messiah would come and crush the serpent's head, doesn't mean that God had it out for snakes. It is uh, the fact that the serpent of old, as we find in the book of Revelation chapter 12, is another name for Satan himself. So uh, when uh, we see Satan uh, being referred to in the book of Job, he is, in fact, the same being that shows up as a serpent in the Garden of Eden. Now, that word serpent doesn't necessarily mean snake, does it? It means shining one, Nahash. Yeah, so uh, whether he showed up like a snake, which is good evidence to suggest this, or, in fact, uh, they took that form because it was something that Adam and Eve would be familiar with. And really, uh, since snakes didn't bite people and there were no venomous snakes, it wouldn't have been a threat or something that would have been scary to them in the slightest. Uh, Whatever reason he chose to take that form, it was effective because Eve listened to him, uh, disobeyed God, and Adam went along with it. And the rest, as they say, is fallen history. And if you want verification on, well, can Satan change form or is he bound to the form of a cherub? Well, you can read in Second Corinthians chapter 12 that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. They can alter their appearances to suit their nefarious purposes, or uh, positive ones in the case of Gabriel. If you read Daniel, he uh, veiled himself quite a bit for his yeah. sake. Yeah. So that being said, a question from Krista, who needs some encouragement. She tried to share the gospel with individuals who are part of the hedonist community, and no matter how much she tried to be gentle and respectful and just explaining that there's a distinction between people who sin and that God still loves them even in spite of their sin. She was attacked. She was misrepresented and misunderstood, which is always fun. And um, 
just basically it seemed like a failure. So how should we approach these issues when we're basically wronged for being right? And the answer was given in part yesterday. We said, make sure this is taken to heart in any form of evangelism, Krista. Our job isn't to get people to the altar. It's to do gardening. Uh, Greg Kokel in his book, Tactics, and basically uh, a tactical, a thoughtful approach towards apologetics, towards giving an answer to people who ask, is my job isn't to convert you. He says this whenever he speaks at college campuses where the hedonist community is very much active. He says, my job, my goal here is to annoy you. I want to put stones in your shoe, which if you've ever had that experience, no, it's a constant but minor irritation that constantly calls to mind little kernels of truth that the Holy Spirit can use later on. A lot of people want to be the gardener, to be the harvester, to be the person who has benefited from the labor of hundreds of people, maybe even thousands, that were used by the Holy Spirit before you. And you think that that's how it works, but the problem is human beings in their hearts are sinful. They are fallen. They are separated from God, and apart from the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't see our need for our Savior. We would only see it as an assault or an affront to our fun. Now, this is going to take a variety of forms. In the hedonist community, obviously, uh, people who derive morality from pleasure. If it feels good, it is good. This is true for homosexuals. This is true for heterosexuals. This is true for anyone who approaches that way of life. But understand the mindset. If this God doesn't appeal to or approve of my chosen lifestyle, then he's an obstacle rather than an asset. And anything that you mention of him, that would stand in the way of my happiness, is evil. Why? Because that's how I've chosen to define things. That requires a heart change. That requires a mind change. And who knows the heart and mind? Him, not us. Who changes the heart and mind? Not arguments, not uh, wit and rhetoric that might make the process smoother, maybe the um, exit more pleasant. But in the end, at the end of the day, some people, as you said, hearts are hard, and they aren't going to listen to anything that stands right. in the way of what they've already decided. Now, again, handing it over to you, Dad, when you were an atheist, there were obviously encounters that you had with Christians sure. that were gracious, and others that maybe not so much. But when it ultimately came down to it, if the Word of God was shared with you, did it uh, have that sort of stone-in-shoe experience and impact on you, even if you didn't necessarily show it? Oh, yeah. You know, I would say uh, the, the expression I would use is like gospel time bombs. Uh, you know, if they wanted to argue with me about their politics and their morality or things like this, uh, that that was fine with me. But every once in a while, one of them get flustered and say, well, I don't know about any of that, but I do know that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And I'd laugh at them and, you know, kind of blow them off. Well, uh, interesting, uh, <laughs> you know, it was like you, you could kind of count on it. It might be a few days later, but that would kind of come back to my mind. I'd have one of those horrible four in the morning situations where I'd wake up and this awful thought would come across my mind. What if they're right? You know, and I'd I'd blow it off and push it aside. But I do believe that that was uh, an example of uh, God uh, plowing the field, in a sense, softening up the soil and getting me ready for the time when I would receive Christ as my Savior. You know, Krista, one of the things that has been really helpful to me 
is that sometimes we look at successful evangelism as a point in time. If we pray the prayer with somebody, then we've been successful in evangelism. But, uh, you know, when I was in seminary, uh, a fellow uh, by the name of uh, Curtis Mitchell came in, a pastor, and did a chapel for us. And boy, what he said really blew my mind, really changed the way I looked at evangelism. He said, evangelism isn't a point in time. It's like a continuum. It's taking somebody who at one end of this continuum, one end of this scale, is at a zero, like no knowledge of the true and living God at all, and moving them one step closer along the line to 100 when they will actually make a decision to receive Christ. Anytime we move that person even one step closer to 100 on that scale, we've been successful in terms of our evangelism. Uh, and so how can we be successful in evangelism? Well, there's a number of ways we can do that. But most importantly, realize that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Romans chapter 10 tells us this. So, you know, I'm not suggesting that we be one-dimensional cardboard figures that are just uh, spouting out scriptures everywhere we go. But when we do have the opportunity to be able to share with people, rather than getting sidetracked maybe onto moral issues or political issues, we, you know, in in my uh, uh, evangelistic efforts, I always try to bring it back to the person of Jesus. Who do you say Jesus is? What do you think about what he taught? Uh, if they're willing to concede that Jesus was a good teacher, I go, well, that's great. You know, let's, let's take a look at what he taught on some of these issues and what it means to know God in a personal way. And, and so even if that person flares up and, you know, stomps and calls me names and, boy, on the Internet, that's an easy thing to do, uh, as well as sometimes in person. I know I've been successful because I've gotten the Word of God out to them. Uh, Curtis Mitchell, in that uh, message I shared, uh, 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 Krista, uh, said something that, that was really powerful. He talked about the parable of the sower that we find in the book of Matthew, chapter 13, the, the parables of the kingdom that Jesus taught there. And uh, if you're familiar with it, it says that a sower went out to sow seed, and some of the seed fell on hard ground. The birds of the air came by and ate the seed. Some of the uh, seed fell on shallow soil, and it uh, penetrated, but it grew up for, a, in, for only a short time. Uh, but uh, the sun beat down on it, and it didn't last because it had no root. Still others fell among the thorns, and it grew up, but other weeds grew up with it and choked it out and made it unfruitful. But then other seed fell on the good soil and produced a crop 30, 60, or 100-fold what was planted. Really interesting, Jesus goes out of his way to explain to his disciples what this parable meant. You can read it for yourself in Matthew chapter 13. But he said, the seed is God's word. And those who sow the seed and it falls on hard soil represent those with hardened hearts. And the wicked one comes and takes the seed away, so it has no chance to grow. The shallow soil, the people who receive the word initially with joy, but uh, when difficulties and hard times come, they fall away because they have no root in themselves. Then he said the ones that fell among the seed, the, the weeds, are the ones that initially receive the word, but... Uh, the desires of this world and the cares of this life grow up and choke out the seed and make it unfruitful. But those who receive the word on good soil and allow it to be able to germinate and root, not only uh, see that seed take root within their lives, but they produce a, uh, an impact on the lives of others, 30, 60, 100-fold of what was, what was uh, uh, planted. And the thing that Curtis Mitchell said that, that blew me away was this, and I hope it blows you away as well. His message was, be a crazy sower. 
don't be a soil inspector. You know, oh, I'm not going to show that person. They're too hard. Nah, you know, that person's flighty. They'll never, ah, oh, you know, that guy's got too much going on. Oh, this woman over here, I don't think they're, they're good soil at all. No, you just get the seed out. Uh, really important question I want to ask you now, Sean. In your ministry, how many people have you saved? Well, zero. Okay, me too. I've never saved anybody. I've shared God's word with people. I've seen the Holy Spirit convict people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I've seen people make decisions to receive Christ and become saved. But that was all God. God honors his word. Our job is to simply speak the truth in love. Don't give non-believers a reason to discount or discredit the message because of hypocrisy or uh, falling into uh, you know anger and 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 uh, you know letting them set the agenda in the conversation emotionally and so on. Uh, we're just like Jesus, and it's not up to us to decide whether uh, we've been good at it or bad at it or indifferent. God, uh, man, looks at results. You know, whenever you hear about a crusade going on, was a crusade? Well, how many decisions for Christ were there? You know, well, you know, I mean, a lot of people could fill out cards and so on, but how many people are still hanging in there later? That's the big question. You know, God doesn't ask for results. He looks for faithfulness. And if we're faithful in what the Lord told us to do, Krista, if you talk to these people that, say, are in the um, uh, hedonist community and, uh, are, uh, and they, they reject your message, guess what? You're in, in great, great company. Uh, you know, the Apostle Paul, you know, I think of, uh, uh, you know, a particular situation uh, where, uh, where Paul was in Lystra, and at first uh, the people there thought that he was a god, and that uh, Barnabas was, uh, was uh, Mercury because he was kind of the chief spokesman and Paul was Zeus. And they were going to bring in an ox and sacrifice it to him. And they tore their clothes and said, we're men just like you and so on. Well, within days, uh, some adversaries of Paul turned the crowd around and they stoned Paul and left him for dead. So, you know, which was successful evangelism? Was that successful evangelism? Well, God sees the hearts, Krista, and I would just encourage you, uh, you know, as you have the opportunity to be able to share with people, uh, you know, don't cast your pearls before swine. What I, I mean is, if people become belligerent, if they uh, get into name-calling and, uh, and uh, just uh, trying to tear you down or provoke you, uh, you don't have to indulge that. Uh, you can only roll in the mud so long with a pig before you figure out the pig's enjoying himself. You know, and Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't give us holy things to depraved men. They'll only turn and attack you. But when that starts to happen, a really uh, helpful uh, tactic, if you will, we talked about Greg Kukul's book on tactics, uh, is this. When someone starts getting hot under the cover and angry and starts throwing out the ad hominem stuff, just ask the question, you know, why do you get so angry when the subject of spiritual things comes up? Has someone who identified themselves as a Christian maybe hurt you in the past? Boy, sometimes if you get down to that real issue, you know, the, uh, the, the, the deep hurts that people have, you, you realize that a lot of this hand-waving and virtue signaling is just, you know, distraction. It's just deflection. But if you can get down and talk to them because you care about them, and you care about the fact that maybe they've had a bad experience before, but you can point to them that Jesus isn't like that. He's very different. Well, then maybe you're going to get somewhere. And, you know, when we stand before the Lord someday, I'm sure we're going to be shocked. 
uh, at how many people that we thought we really influenced for the kingdom of God, maybe didn't so much, and how many people we were absolutely convinced we made no impact on are actually there and grateful because we actually shared with them. Yeah, so. so regarding the encouragement you came for, two things that we'll leave you with. First of all, don't judge or measure your success or failure to the kingdom of heaven based on even necessarily how well people responded to it, because the best sermons were responded to with attempts to murder our Lord. He didn't make a mistake based on their reactions. He faithfully taught the gospel, and of course, that was the foundation of what he will answer to himself for as well as to us. So note that point. You didn't do anything wrong. The second thing is noting this. What you just experienced are the foundations of what makes the lionesses and lions of the kingdom of God. The people who are out there and willing to be humiliated, willing to be tongue-lashed and basically given the riot act for trying to do the right thing, the person, not just who goes through those things, but experiences them and uses it as kind of fuel for the fire, so to speak, and saying, well, I don't want that to happen again. I better know what I believe next time. I better start looking up some fast answers. I should start with maybe this community in particular, because I, I have mo- emotional association with Or them. read a book like Greg Kukul's book. Yeah, just yeah. use that as emotional energy. What you just went through has laid the foundation for some of the best evangelists, Bible teachers, and apologists out there, but it all depends on how you respond to it. So the that's the encouragement. You haven't done anything wrong, and what you're going through has... Uh, produced very good fruit (laughs) in the lives of people I even look up to and learn from regularly. But also note as well, here's the exhortation, make sure that you respond to this properly, don't use it as motivation to avoid future conversations, but be better equipped for them in the future, and hopefully that's a comfort to you as well. Yeah, uh, and I would just add uh, at the end there, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9 says, and let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Uh, you know, kill these people with kindness. Uh, you know, Krista, uh, be an example of someone that doesn't return evil for evil. And uh, as Romans chapter 12 says, you'll be driving them crazy. So. <laughs> and you'll subject them to the wrath of God. So with that in mind, a uh, question from Nina who wants to know, will secondary issues be solved in heaven? Will we know everything, or will some things remain a mystery and chal- and chal- I guess uh, would challenge us even in heaven, and we just won't care anymore? I don't think we'll stop caring, Nina. When it comes to understanding anything, there's a passage in First Corinthians and regarding the heavenly perspective where it says, and I believe it's verses. Uh, 10 through 11 of 1 Corinthians 13. When I thought as a, when I was a child, I thought as a child, I spoke right. as a child, I understood as a child, right. but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now, this isn't uh, saying that grown-ups aren't allowed to have hobbies in the kingdom of heaven. Stop having <laughs> fun, you heathen. No, that's saying in reference to the love, the greatest spiritual gift that was discussed, it then goes on to say, for I, notice, for I, know in part and I prophesy in part. This is in reference to what he understands about the gospel and what he's sharing about God. He then says, but when I am fully known, I will know just as I am known. And then goes on to say, now abide these three, faith, hope, love, but the greatest of these is love. Point of emphasis to that passage that we should take away from an eternal perspective is this. When it comes to understanding what we need to know, 
we've been given enough in the here and now. When it comes to what we'll have opportunity to know, it won't be the pursuit of omniscience. We aren't going to become like God and knowing everything at some point into eternity. There will always be something new, greater, and more wonderful to enjoy and to learn and to know about God. But the fact that we'll always have something to learn doesn't mean that we'll demonstrate our fallen natures and just give up in the pursuit. We'll always want to know more about God because we'll be perfect in what? Love for him. We'll yep. want to pursue that relationship more and more, and there'll be no end to the journey. Doesn't mean that there won't be achievements and steps made, but the fact that something infinitely good can also be infinitely enjoyed is worth looking forward to, not dismissing. That being said, if I say, uh, make the observation, will secondaries be solved out in heaven? Probably sooner than that, if we're willing to put our nose to the grindstone, let the Holy Spirit convict and lead us into all truth. I think these secondary issues can be sorted out in the hearts and lives of every single believer, but the problem is our time is so short on this earth. I mean, back in the garden days, you know, that was a blink of an eye compared to eternity. We have maybe a tenth of the average lifespan as they have then and now, and we barely are able to grasp the single spiritual gifts that we've been given. If you're called to be faithful in sharing the gospel, by all means, be, do the work on evangelists, fulfill your ministry. If you're called to answer Bible questions, we're going to try and stay faithful to that as the Spirit equips us. But if I, I guess, read my fallenness into heaven, and we do this all the time, but if I assume my attitude will be something I bring with me to eternal and heavenly glory, I probably would get discouraged and just give up after a while. I do right. that here on this earth. Who can know the things of God? But if, on the other hand, I ask, well, what would Jesus's attitude be in getting to know his Father if he didn't already know everything about the Father, since he said in the Gospels that no one knows the Father except the Son and whom the Son reveals? So note that point. The true statements that we do have are A, enough, but B, will be fully appreciated and pursued in heaven. Doesn't mean that we'll acquire every truth, that would be blasphemous, but it would be noting uh, heaven's not going to be boring. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah. Hey, I uh, wanted to get to a question that was asked uh, before airtime. There was a, a story that uh, ran and got a lot of traction on the good old interwebs, and you can understand why. Uh, the famous Georgia Guidestones, uh, it's been called America's Stonehenge. A uh, mysterious set of 19-foot-tall uh, uh, granite monoliths that were set up in uh, the state of Georgia to serve as an astronomical uh, calendar and also included a 10-part uh, list of instructions uh, regarding the future of mankind. It's, uh, the languages were written in uh, English, Spanish, Swahili, Hindi, Hebrew, Arabic, Chinese, and Russian, as well as four ancient languages, Babylonian, Classical Greek, Sanskrit, and Egyptian hieroglyphics. It includes 10 uh, of uh, the builders of the Guidestones' priorities for the future of man on Earth, among them maintaining humanity under 500 million people in perpetual balance with nature, well, since we're up around uh, 7, 8 billion, uh, that would require some pretty scary doing. Guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity, unite humanity with a living new language, go back to Babel, if you will, uh, rule passion, faith, and tradition in all things with tempered reason, uh, depending on who 
uh, is deciding what is reasonable. Uh, protect uh, people and nation with fair laws and just courts. Let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world co- court. Avoid petty laws and useless officials. Well, that would require some real adjustment in our day and age. Balance personal rights with social duties. Prize truth, beauty, love, seeking harmony with the infinite, whatever that is. Be not a cancer on the earth. Leave room for nature. Leave room for nature. So uh, this structure was unveiled in 1979, and uh, to this day, nobody really knows who put them up or why. Uh, And because of that, obviously, conspiracy theories and things like that have run amok. Well, uh, yesterday, uh, apparently, someone was really offended by them because they blew up uh, a number of uh, the stones. uh, And uh, they detonated an explosive device that destroyed a large portion of the mysterious structure. So the question is, uh, are the Georgia monuments uh, a harbinger of uh, the Antichrist? Well, uh, certainly there's uh, a lot of things in the uh, Georgia monument that a one-world government, uh, a uh, God-of-the-Bible-denying government, uh, would certainly not uh, have any problem with. Uh, The idea that we hear from, say, uh, radical environmentalists that humanity needs to be culled uh, down to a reasonable level, uh, that there's just too many of us, and uh, by any means necessary, this needs to have a philosophy called Malthusianism. Uh, that uh, would certainly be something that would be the spirit of the Antichrist. But, you know, as far as these things having any power or uh, any, uh, uh, you know, leading in to the actual coming of the Antichrist, I think there's sort of certainly an Antichrist spirit that's involved with that. In the book of 1 John, chapter 2, we are told, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know we're in the last hour. Uh, John makes an interesting statement. There is going to be one big A Antichrist, a last day's world-dominating dictator who's going to come to power. I believe in the chaos that is going to happen after the rapture of the church, Uh, but uh, till that time he's got a lot of protégés that are producing uh, his disciples and promoting very similar doctrine to his, but they are not the big A Antichrist. And these uh, Georgia stones, I think they gave a lot of people the willies, but uh, I don't think there's anything really particularly prophetic about them beyond the fact they reflect uh, Antichrist-approved priorities and moralities. All right, we got about 20 seconds, so I'm going to try and do a lightning round here. We got a few questions that could be answered pretty straightforwardly. The first was uh, Goliath demon possessed or demonically influenced? The answer is no. He's never referred to as such. He was just a big guy. Uh, Yari wants to know if the cherubim are a quadrinity, and the answer is no. They do not have, um, and this is they don't share in essence. Yeah. yeah, they're four distinct, four living creatures, not one angel with four distinct independent persons with exclusive attributes belonging to the cherubim. That would be that kind of definition. Then finally, uh, Neil wants to know, in Job 1-7, it says Satan could walk. So how is he cursed if it says you'll crawl on your belly? Uh, That was a prophetic curse in noting... It's also a euphemism for being utterly humiliated. So hopefully that helps you out. God bless you. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope.
A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.